0: Church, we find ourselves tonight in Luke chapter 18. Uh, And at this point, we have been in Luke's gospel by my count for a little under three years, and we have been slowly and steadily uh, working week by week through the text, taking breaks, of course, uh, for Easter and for Christmas and uh, for our summers when we're in the Psalms. But but by and large, we've been walking through this text consistently for a a number of, of years now. And, and one of the things that we, we want to be careful of, particularly later on in the Gospel of Luke, is that we don't miss things that Luke has laid down for his readers early on, which are themes that you need to understand in order to follow uh, by the time you're reading it later. It's one of, the, one of the things that is often observed of the text of Scripture. These letters uh, and these Gospels and these compositions were originally written to be read in a relatively short span of time, maybe an hour maybe a couple of days but certainly not as we typically do in the church today spread them out over sometimes months or years worth of time to read Uh, they were meant to be coherent works in themselves explaining details as they went and so one of the things that we we are always in danger of as people who want to read the text closely and carefully is that we get our head down in the details and we we're missing the rest of the motif of the book that was laid early on and that we should be picking up as we're reading uh if you if you like this is often uh uh, observed when someone is learning how to swim for the first time uh when people are learning how to swim the the first thing you have to get someone to do is to not sink when they're in the water the second thing you have to teach them to do is how to move forward and make make forward progress as they're swimming and then what inevitably happens is especially with young children as they're swimming making forward progress they want to keep their head well out of the water so they're not drinking water as they're swimming right they want to breathe air as all humans do and so Well, then you have to teach them to put their head in the water so they can actually be more streamlined, so they can swim faster. And then the final step of that process is to teach them that while their head is in the water making forward progress, every now and again, they have to pull their head out uh, and not forward so that they lose all their momentum and and stall, but over to the side where they're breathing out of the side of their their body so they can draw air while still making forward progress. It's a little bit of what I'm going to try to do tonight in the Gospel of Luke. I want us to Breathe, uh, take a step to look at the whole of the gospel and, without stalling and, and not making any more forward progress. The verses of chapter 18, verses 31 and 34 draw for us a motif which Jesus has been laying down and Luke has been laying down uh, indeed for the entirety of the gospel. Even in your English Bible, it'll have a subheader something like, Jesus foretells his death a third time right? What they're cluing you in on is this is not the first time this has been said. This is not the second time this has been said. By the count of most authors, Jesus is telling this to his disciples for the third time. But actually, as observed uh, by Dale Ralph Davis, this is about the seventh time that Jesus or Luke has made an allusion to the death which he is to experience at the cross. So uh, in order for us to see that motif, we need to, well, go and look at the text. Now, I just finished in seminary Uh, preaching class and what we're going to do they tell us don't do that when you're teaching people in class because we're just going to be flipping from text to text and then at the end of that kind of heady flipping and looking we'll draw some of those themes together but first uh, let's go to the text of scripture in luke chapter 5 we're going to begin in verse 35 tracing this motif of jesus's predicted death luke chapter 5 uh, we find Jesus in a scuffle on the Sabbath. Uh, he's, he's about to enter into a second one in just a moment. But in chapter 5, verse 35, one of the things Jesus does in his defense of his disciples not fasting on a regular basis um, is he, he basically observes that they are celebrating the bridegroom while he is with them. And in verse uh, 35, Jesus says it this way, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. You see the illusion that Jesus has stated and Luke has included is there will be a time when the bridegroom is taken away. They'll fast then. So Luke is making an illusion for us, the reader, and and Jesus is telling to his immediate audience, there's going to be a time where I'm not around. It's a warning. Now, it's not clear in Luke 5.35 all that detail that's going to be flushed out, but it's a seedling of an idea that he will be taken away from his disciples. So there's the seed form of the idea. Now, the next time a reference like this happens is in chapter 9, verse 22. So if you'll flip over with me to chapter 9, verse 22 of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is uh, engaging uh, in the first prediction of his death as he speaks to his disciples. And uh, this is shortly after Peter has just confessed that Jesus is Christ. And and Jesus charges Peter and the apostles, don't say anything about that. And then he says this, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, here's a more detailed flushing out of the idea that the bridegroom will be taken. Here, the bridegroom will be taken by, well, specific people, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. These are all Jewish groups, Jewish leadership, that are the covenant people of God, and Jesus is saying these people, the theologians you trust and have been training you in the doctrine of God for your entire life, these are the people who are gonna take the Messiah, me, and kill him. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Now that reads an awful lot like the text we just read, uh, or that Josh just read for us, because that, that text shows to us a more fleshed out understanding of this prediction by Jesus. But nevertheless, you see it in chapter 9, verse 22. And you don't have to go out of chapter 9 to see it again. Chapter 9, verse 43, you'll see another allusion to the same idea. In chapter 9, verse uh, 43, again, the disciples are marveling at what Jesus is doing in his ministry, verse 43, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus says to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, another detail, which we also saw in our text tonight, but they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Now that detail is even more like the text that we uh, read together tonight, because this detail tells us not just that he Uh, is going to be killed but also that the disciples don't quite understand what he's getting at when he tells them that he's going to be killed the next time this comes up in the text of luke is only a couple chapters later in chapter 12 and for this uh, go to the end of chapter 12 in verse 50 where jesus makes another allusion to the idea of his death Here, speaking about his ministry on earth, he says, verse 49, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until I accomplish it. Now, if you remember when we were in that text a a number of months ago now, Luke chapter 12, I, I pointed out that this is Jesus alluding to his own crucifixion, his own death, which he must undergo and endure, And that's why he longs to accomplish this feat. This is the purpose of his earthly ministry. And here he says his distress is great. Once again, alluding to his crucifixion. One chapter later, it's the same thing. Uh, This is chapter 13, verse 32. And this is when uh, Jesus laments over the city of Jerusalem, the city of the people of God. Remember Jerusalem is God's covenant people. And this is the city uh, upon which they would say this is like their, their champion city. Verse 31 of chapter 13. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I must cast out demons and perform many cures today and tomorrow. And the third day, I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem and then he laments over the city which is to destroy him saying these words behold your house is forsaken and I will tell you you will not see me again until you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord so Jesus alluding not only in this moment to his death his 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 final hour his final moments but particularly saying that it is impossible for him to die outside of Jerusalem now we might say how is it impossible It's impossible because the will of God, the unchanging plan of God to save his people has said this is how it will be accomplished. Jesus is saying he's not going to die away from Jerusalem. A prophet must perish in Jerusalem. So this is uh, chapter 13. Now, the last one before our text tonight is in Luke chapter 17, verse 25. And in chapter 17... Verse 25, uh, we have an allusion to Jesus' once again suffering and rejection. And I want to start uh, for this one uh, in verse 22, just because it colors in the, the motif of Son of Man in with the prediction. Verse 22 says, The days are coming when you desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as lightning flashes up from the sky and one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But notice this, verse 25. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. That rejection and suffering is the same motif that Jesus has said in our text tonight in Luke chapter 18. And it's the same thing that Luke has been writing about in his gospel from the earliest days of Jesus' ministry. From chapter five, as a through line, he's been pulling forth the idea that Jesus is not just coming as a triumphal king, another motif in the Gospel of Luke, but as one who will suffer and be rejected and crucified as as a necessary part of his ministry. What's interesting about the Gospel of Luke is that he is wedding together motifs, which the Old Testament keep somewhat at arm's length And Luke is, as as he tells us from the beginning of his writing, he has carefully studied all things closely. He's interviewed the eyewitnesses. He's read the source documents. He's studied them. He's pieced together the different parts. And he says, it is fitting for me also to write an account of the things which have been accomplished. It is fitting for me also to tell you, bringing together all the various strands of what was predicted, how Jesus Christ accomplished this in his ministry. He tells us this in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. And he's been doing that. He's, he's not only telling us that Jesus is king, coming to triumphantly reign over his people. Not only is he coming as Messiah, not only is he coming as son of man, not only is he the son of the most high or the heir of David's throne, but he also comes, as he's been kind of weaving throughout, he comes as a suffering servant to die in place of those who he has come to save. Now this motif, this idea of Jesus' suffering, is I think the thing that best explains what we see at the end of our text. So if you look at uh, verse 34 of Luke chapter 18, when the disciples hear the words that Jesus says, the the text observes for us three different times that the disciples don't get it. The text basically says, they don't get it, they don't get it, they don't get it. And it says it in these words, but they understood none of these things, period. This saying was hidden from them, comma, and they did not grasp what was said. In, In three different ways of speaking the text tells us they don't get it they missed the point they're not quite putting it together so this is what the now that does not mean by the way that the disciples don't understand greek all of a sudden or aramaic that they can't put words together and form phrases or they somehow that jesus is speaking in tongues and they just don't get what he's speaking in anymore the disciples understand the syntax the grammar they've not forgotten vocabulary words they understand what is being said They just don't understand how it fits in the other pieces of the puzzle, such as he is triumphal king, son of David, who is son of the Most High, who comes to rule and reign in place of his people. They're not putting together these divergent strands of his teaching. And this is the second time that when Jesus announces his death, the text reflects for us, and the disciples didn't get it. Now, what's interesting, not in Luke's gospel, but in John's gospel, John tells us something similar about the disciples. When Jesus says something in John chapter 2, verse 22, uh, the disciples respond saying, and after he had resurrected, the disciples remember that he had spoken these words. So the disciples are only putting some of these pieces together later on in life, after the resurrection. And the, the gospel authors, remember Luke is writing after the resurrection and the events have occurred. So he writes with clarity. He can speak, let's say, from a, from a third party point of view about the events. And he paraphrastically inserts lots of editorial notes like this, such as, The disciples who hear these words, by the way, they didn't quite get it yet. They're not putting the pieces together yet. But that doesn't mean the pieces aren't there. The pieces aren't uh, in play. It just means that the disciples, as they're living uh, and following Jesus, they're not quite assembling all the parts yet. That's okay, because the disciples uh, are not inerrant or infallible or anything like that. We can expect them to miss things. And the disciples also aren't alone in missing things these various strands. Because the prophets and the Old Testament at large says many divergent things about the one who is to save the people of God, and it's not always clear how they could possibly be speaking about the same person. For instance, if you just look at the text that we're reading, verse uh, 31, uh, when he says, uh, when Jesus says to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, And then he says this next phrase, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Now, if you were to get a study Bible or a dictionary and you were to look up this phrase, Son of Man, or if you're fancier, you go to Bible Gateway and you type in the words, and you were to see where does this term occur in the Old Testament, there's only one mention of the phrase Son of Man in connection to any kind of messianic figure. It's in Daniel chapter seven, verse 14. So when Jesus says, when you see that is written, uh, by all the prophets uh, about the Son of Man, he's using the Son of Man as a shorthand phrase to talk about the Messiah, the Christ, the one who is to redeem his people. Now in Daniel 7:14 is, is an interesting reference because in that, in that moment it highlights the enthronement of the Son of Man, the one who is to reign on the throne of the ancient of days, who is to reign over the kingdom of the ancient of days, who is to receive worship, like the ancient of days receives worship, who gets allegiance like the Ancient of Days gets allegiance, and whose kingdom is everlasting in the way that the Ancient of Days kingdom is everlasting. So the Son of Man figure in Daniel 7, 14 is a royal, crowning, domineering king who reigns unchallenged over all opposition. But take uh, for a moment other texts, other prophets, which speak about the Messiah in a different light and think about how difficult it could be to put all those pieces together. Luke has already made reference in his gospel to Isaiah, and in Isaiah, when he quotes from Isaiah, he quotes from chapter 61, and he says about the ministry of the Messiah, he says, I came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to give sight to the blind, liberty to the captives, to set the people free. This is what Luke is writing, he's writing from the point of view of Isaiah, quoting Isaiah's prophecies and referencing them to Jesus' ministry. So it wouldn't surprise you or I to know that the dominant theme that Luke is drawing from here, when he says the Messiah must be persecuted and tormented and put to shame and then later rise, well, that's a dominant theme in Isaiah. In fact, many scholars will remark that in Isaiah, there's four unique what are called servant songs. And these servant songs, depict a messianic figure who at that point in time they're not quite sure is it the same messianic figure a different messianic figure how many messiahs are there going to be but it depicts a kind of person who's going to redeem the fallen people of god from their own rebellion and he's gonna he's gonna do so by suffering in their stead by satisfying the debt which is owed to the holy god Now, just like we were just flipping through the text of Luke to see how Jesus refers to his own suffering and Luke refers to that suffering throughout the text. I also want you to see how Isaiah refers to this suffering servant messianic figure. So if you would, Isaiah chapter 42, verse one. We'll only be looking at the four servant songs and they're relatively short in Isaiah's prophecy. But they bring to head the question that Isaiah asks from the beginning of his prophecy. How can an unclean people relate to a holy God? Isaiah even says of himself, I am an unclean man dwelling amidst a people who are also unclean. How then can we worship the holy God? And Isaiah 42 and following begins to resolve some of these points. Isaiah 42, beginning in verse one, and here we see the Lord's chosen servant. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice upon the earth and the coastlands await his law. So here you have God speaking to his servant, Isaiah recording this discussion of the servant, and we get a description of what this servant is like. The servant is going to establish justice, kind of like in Daniel seven fourteen how the Messiah establishes justice. But in this case, it seems as though the servant will, through, uh, through his own pain and through his own labor, establish justice. You see in the text the idea that he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice, Well, what does that mean? It it means he's he's going to want to cry aloud and lift up his voice. He's going to want to cry out. At great pains to himself, he will bring forth justice. Verse 3, he will faithfully bring about justice on the earth. Jesus faithfully brings forth justice in his earthly ministry. Now the question is, how does that figure of a suffering justice bringer match up with Daniel 7.14 of a conquesting justice bringer? Well, Uh, before we answer that question, we have to see the other depictions of this servant in Isaiah. So Isaiah chapter 49 is the next depiction. Uh, It's only seven chapters later. And also it is verse one of that chapter, Isaiah 49 verse one. We read again about this servant of the Lord, these words, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention to you peoples from afar. So now, the the lord speaks to not just israel but all the earth the lord called me from the womb from the body of my mother he named my name he made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand he hid me he made me a polished arrow and in his quiver he hid me away and he said to me you are my servant israel in whom i will be glorified but i said i have labored in vain i have spent my strength for nothing in vanity yet surely my right is with the lord And my recompense is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. And he says, this is verse six, it is, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? No, I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Here, the servant is not just the redeemer of the Jewish people. In this case, the servant Israel will be the savior of the nations, the people who are scattered abroad in the earth, not just the covenant people of God, but even those who have never tasted covenant with God will be brought in by this servant. Now, here's what I want you to observe, and you probably notice it in the text. In verse 3, the servant is referred to as Israel. Now, the problem with saying, that well, that means it's the nation that's the suffering servant, is that Israel is redeeming Israel and other nations. So Israel, like many times in the prophets, is a archetypal picture of God's chosen. So the prophet here uses the term Israel to refer to the true faithful Israelite. And as Matthew says, out of Egypt, I called my son. He, He is the true Israel of God, the one who will redeem the people of God. So Israel is a, is a reference to the faithful Israelite, the true Israelite, Jesus, who is obedient to all of what God requires of his chosen people. And this Israel brings about rescue, not just to the tribes of Jacob, referring to the 12 tribes who are scattered, but also so that salvation may reach the ends of the earth. This is a glorious salvation, which the servant accomplishes. That's servant song two in Isaiah, and we have two more to go. So flip one chapter later to Isaiah chapter 50. And we will begin in verse 4 this time. And here it's interesting, we see the word ministry of the servant who is not just suffering and redeeming and establishing justice. He's spreading that justice across the globe to the whole earth. And here in verse 4, we see the word ministry of this servant. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. That would be the people of God who are weary and broken that Jesus will sustain with his word. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull on the beard. I hid not my face from the disgrace and from the spitting. But the Lord God helps me Therefore, I have not been disgraced. And therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. He Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, of all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Here the servant mediates a word ministry to sustain the weary. And he does so by, well, he has to learn. That's an interesting idea that that the the son has to learn. He has to to hear. His ear has to be open so he can learn and understand. And then he mediates that ministry back to the people of God. He himself, verse 5 note, is not rebellious. He does not turn backwards. Uh, He sets his face like a flint. And we've seen that actually in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 9. Jesus sets his face like a flint towards Jerusalem to accomplish what is to be accomplished. And notice the the last observation here before we go to the last song. Verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheek to those who pull the beard. This is a servant who is going to suffer not just death, but shame. He will suffer shame at the hands of those who will ultimately kill him. And the last of the servant songs, undoubtedly the most famous of the servant songs, is in Isaiah 52. And here I will not once again read all of these verses, even though they are so glorious to read. But rather uh, I want to skip to uh, halfway through this servant song, uh, where we see in verse 3 of the text of Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men would hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So this servant suffers. He suffers shame. And he suffers these things, remember the first servant song, to establish justice upon the earth he mediates justice. This is the same figure in Isaiah. The servant is in all four of these texts. So this servant establishes justice, mediates the word of God, suffers for the people of God, and is ultimately killed for the people of God. As, the, as I stopped one verse short of saying, he is pierced for the transgressions of the people who are reflecting upon his suffering. So now we have an interesting idea. Luke is writing in chapter 18 of his gospel, this idea that there is a son of David who will come to suffer and be rejected and who will be killed and who will be resurrected. And it's only the death and resurrection that makes sense of all the various motifs of who the Messiah is to be. You see, one idea that was about the the servant of God is that he is a different figure from the one who comes and reigns triumphantly. That one will die and another will reign. That there might be several messiahs who are to be in place. But what's interesting is that it's one messiah, it's one figure, but who lives essentially two lives. One life in which he comes to suffer, to seek and save that which is lost, to mediate his word to the people, ultimately to culminate in death. And then a second life, whence he resurrects from the dead with a glorified body, ascending on high, once again mediating the word of God to the people of God. But this time when he comes, he comes as a triumphant ruling king who does not mediate mercy, but who mediates justice for those who have yet to receive his offer. It's a fascinating idea. And Luke is carefully reading Isaiah as he composes his own gospel to not only lay these themes down, but also for us to pick up on them. Now, I recognize that many of these things can be lost on us if we didn't do what we just did, which is look through the text as its reference and then look at Isaiah as its reference. Because you and I, I'm guessing, don't walk around with Isaiah chapter 1 through Isaiah chapter 66 memorized in our heads. We have access to it on our phone. We can look something up. But we don't walk around with all those ideas floating around in our heads as a first century Jew might have been able to do by means of, memorizing scripture because it's God's word to them. And so Luke writes his, his gospel to the people of God and he's going to expect that when he references the suffering servant that they're saying, yes, Isaiah the prophet speaks of the suffering servant. And when he speaks of the messianic king, they go, yes, Isaiah speaks of the servant who mediates justice to the people. And he clues us in in chapter four of Luke's gospel where he, said, where he even quotes directly from Isaiah and Jesus says, behold, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So he establishes, he's referencing Isaiah. He references Isaiah kind of throughout. And here I'm just showing you, hey, he's been referencing Isaiah. So you can see it too. Okay, that's a little heady, a little much. Now here's the question. What does this have to do with us today who live thousands of years after these events have unfolded? Well, first we can ask the question, what is this established truth in the text of Luke's gospel? What does this tell us about God, his character, and his nature? It's one of the best questions we can ask when we study the text of scripture. What does it tell us about God? This text tells us that God's plan is an unalterable and inviolable plan to save his people from their sin. You and I, when we make plans, they don't always work out how we want them to. Think about your life five years ago from today and ask yourself the question could you have with any kind of accuracy predicted how things would have unfolded over the course of the last five years. I don't know where you were five years ago for most of you but I'm willing to guess that if you were to give yourself even a good margin for error you would still be wildly off from where you might be right now. Now, Five years ago some of you hadn't even entered college yet. Five years ago uh, some of you don't have the jobs that you currently have. Five years ago There's many people who are married in this church right now who didn't even know their spouse at that time. Five years is a long time. And our plans change all the time. Even wise and prayerful and well-intentioned plans change regularly. Here's what this teaches about God. We have a recorded testimony to his faithful plan, which he has regularly carried out with precision and accuracy and timeliness for thousands of years. His plans don't change. They are unalterable. They are persistent. Uh, They plod along steadily in the right time to be accomplished. Now that's good news for us because if that's true of a God's character, that's still true of how God relates to you and I. When we are a rather waffling kind of creature, uh, we go one day feeling great about God and wanting to pray towards him. And a week later, we will find ourselves in despondency saying we have sinned, or we don't feel excited about God anymore. What's wrong with me? And we might think that God is like that with us as well, that he changes his opinions towards us. But this text tells us God is a persistent God. He has a persistent plan. He mediates it persistently. And he pursues us. But see, often we think about ourselves as we need to pursue God who kind of stays in place. But the text of Scripture actually speaks about us who wander away, fleeing from God, And he is the shepherd who seeks the sheep, the woman who seeks the coin, the father who seeks the son. He is the one who seeks after his people. He will not be thwarted, he will not be stopped, he will get what is his. And that is a comfort to you and I, because that is our hope, that he will accomplish what he has set out to accomplish. That's the hope of our security. Paul says, what God has began in you, he will bring to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. That is our hope for salvation. That is a comfort when we are at our lowest, and also it's a comfort when we are at our highest. Because when you feel at your best, you know, you know it's going to stop. You know at some point that feeling is going to go away. You're not going to feel as excited as you are anymore. And the good news of salvation is it actually never depended on you to begin with, and it never is riding on your own feelings, dispositions, or posture towards God. He loves you. He's seeking you. And he will have you. He will save you from your sins, even if you don't feel great about yourself today. And that's the good news that this text teaches us about the character of God. One of the texts that I've been uh, reading lately is a, 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 one of my favorite stories. I've been rereading Lord of the Rings because it's been so long since I've read it. It's basically like reading it new. Now, whether you have read the books or watched the movies, the plot line is, let's say, relatively unmarred. And one of the things that happens in the very first movie or the very first book is we meet the fellowship who has set out to destroy the ring, which is the greatest weapon of their enemy, and they have a well-laid plan. They have a plan where they are going to send the best warriors of the dwarves, of the elves, and of men with a couple of hobbits who can resist the power of the ring, and they will destroy the ring. They have a well-laid plan, and they even have a wizard to boot on their journey. And it doesn't take more than three pages in at least the printed text and probably a couple of minutes in the movie version, before that plan goes wildly astray. You see, the very first thing the fellowship sets out to do is to cross over one region over the mountains, and they are thwarted by the storms, and so they have to actually go through the dangerous mountain, which ultimately kills the wizard and leads to his death. And not only a couple of days later does the fellowship ultimately get disbanded at the hands of those who are pursuing against them. The greatest might of Middle Earth was scattered in a number of months by circumstance, by persistence, and by a couple of missteps because they don't have perfect foresight or perfect planning. Now, we live in a world that feels like that. That's our life experience about how plans unfold over time. And the thing that Scripture teaches us as a true thing, which kind of rings through all of the noise, is that God's plans are just not like that. We might experience them in that kind of a way, But his providence is such that his plans are unfailing. This is who God is. It's what he's like. His best laid plans are not like our best laid plans. He is unlike us in that way. So this text teaches us not only about God and Jesus' mission, but also about God's character to carry out that mission. And then the text also mediates to us something, I think, merciful, which is in verse 34, where we see the response of the disciples. Uh, They understood none of these things. Now, there, I don't know that you've ever been in a, in a college class before or heard someone talking about some idea that was a little over your head. And you felt, I can understand 15% of what's being said, or I understand 3% of what's going on. Or perhaps as uh, I had this experience when I was in college, I was getting ready for a test one, one day, the morning of, of the test. And uh, I just had this moment where I realized, I understand maybe at best 20% of the notes that the test is going to cover. And not only that, but I don't have access to the other 80% of the notes that I need access to because I wasn't present in class to take those notes. And there's just this feeling of, well, I have 20%. uh, That's a 20%. You know, I can at least get that. Here the disciples, they don't understand 20% of what Jesus said. The text says they understood none of the things that Jesus said. Now imagine walking into a test, a comprehension exam, and you know zero percent of the material covered. Now, none of you have ever had that experience, I trust, in, in life, because the school system is set up such that that won't happen to you. At best, you'll be able to fill out your name, maybe one of the multiple-choice questions if you guess. You'll get something. You'll get some credit. The disciples here fail. They get zero credit. They understood none of what Jesus has said. They cannot put these divergent pieces together. Now, that's a wonderful thing for the text to tell us about the disciples, because, well, we are the disciples. We are the ones who just don't get it. We can't put pieces together. Now, we look at what Jesus says here and we go, isn't it obvious? Can't you see he's told us, he's told you it's going to happen? But we read knowing the answer key at the end, that Jesus will resurrect and rise and reign triumphantly. We know all that stuff, and they don't have access to that information. But what the disciples do tell us is how we often relate to God, which is that, let's say, his mission his salvation actually doesn't depend a whole lot on our understanding of it now this is wonderful because often there's this pressure that christians feel to know the plan that god has for us for our lives what we are to do and carry out in this world Uh, we have to know with great precision and clarity what we are to do what mission we're to run after and we feel that that is something we must know before we can strike out into faithfulness here the disciples know nothing they understand nothing And Jesus is still doing his thing, unthwarted. He will set his face toward Jerusalem. He will carry out his mission. Now, that's of great comfort because let's say you're ever at a moment where you wake up one day or you have a moment where you say, I just don't quite know what God's doing in my life right now. or I don't know what this job has for me, or I don't know really what this friendship is going on here. I don't know about this relationship. I don't know about fill in the blank. I just don't know how it's all going to work out. It doesn't actually require much of our understanding, even our understanding of how God's working. But what, the, what Scripture does tell us is we should trust God that he is indeed working, that he is indeed faithful, that he is indeed working all things out for those who love him. The text of Scripture tells us often in a number of ways here by means of the disciples that their understanding or lack thereof doesn't actually move God's plan in any one direction or another and actually All these disciples are going to go on to become bold witnesses for the faith, minus, obviously, Judas, who betrays him. But the text tells us that at this point, their lack of understanding isn't actually a predicting factor for how God's going to move and work in their lives to shape them, to mold them, and to change them so that they might be a powerful witness for him one day. And if that is not a comfort to you, who maybe at this juncture doesn't know exactly how God is working in you to prepare you, to use you, perhaps you have often, as I did when I was first graduating from college, wondered, What on earth am I gonna do with my life that will be of any significance for the kingdom of God? Or how in any way will God be pleased to use me at all? Here's the comfort. We don't actually need to know the answer to that question in order to trust that God is working and that he will be faithful. Now, by the way, I just wanna be clear, that does not guarantee significance on our part. That does not guarantee that people will walk around knowing our name or that we can uh, tally a bunch of conversions that we've had onto a sleeve somewhere. That does not guarantee any of that. But it it does guarantee that our faithfulness does not demand our understanding. Our faithfulness demands our trust of the one who we are following after. And that's a comfort, because we hardly ever know what's going on. We hardly ever know what the mission of God is. We know with clarity, obviously, big marching orders. Go make disciples, be faithful, be faithful. Don't sin. We know those marching orders, but sometimes it's hard to see exactly how those are mediating themselves out in our job. Perhaps, for instance, you wonder, will my faithfulness to God in this moment lead to my coworkers despising me and not wanting to talk to me, so I'm going to lose a gospel opportunity? Or will it lead to one of them striking up a conversation because they're struck by my faithfulness and how I love God? Well, here's a question that we don't actually need an answer to because what God says is be faithful and I'm going to work it out. Be faithful to what I call you to do, and I will work my spirit to prepare hearts, to prepare souls, so that you can be a witness, whether that is for your own rejection, as it is in the life of Jeremiah, or for the glorious harvest which God is preparing for himself, uh, as is the case with many of the apostles. Uh, We simply don't know, and we don't need clarity in order to be faithful. Because God is on mission, whether or not we understand how he is on mission. Now, much of what I've been talking about in the text tonight draws together this theme of the fulfillment of God, how God will fulfill his plan, and how Luke is telling us God is fulfilling his plan. Now, what we need to do uh, in order to wrap this up nicely is at least glance over to God's fulfillment of the plan in the Gospel of Luke. I've been hinting that we know it. I just want us to see it. And this is uh, in Luke chapter 24, where we see the resurrection. So Jesus at this moment has, let me just fast forward for you. He has been betrayed. He has been spit upon. He has been crucified. He has been buried. And here he resurrects from the grave. And what we see in Luke 24 is an amazing note of hope. What Jesus predicted, Luke records for us, did come to pass. Luke 24 verse 1, but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed down their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee? that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. It is with this clarity that the disciples go out, transformed and changed forever. It is with this kind of clarity that Luke writes his gospel, so that as his readers we may have certainty about the things which he records for us. And that certainty comes not just by knowing what Jesus says he's going to do, but by knowing what Jesus actually did. He actually accomplished dying instead of sinners, dying in your place to suffer for your sins and to be crucified on your behalf, the punishment for sin, which God justly demands of you. And then once dying, he resurrected in a glorified body so that he could not only tell us about what death we have avoided, but what life we can expect in him who is our risen savior and king how he has faithfully adopted us into his family, how he loves us as precious children, and how he will save us from our sins by his power and not our power. That is the glory of Jesus, what he has accomplished and what Luke has recorded. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we are in ever-ceasing praise of your glory. You have revealed yourself to us You have revealed yourself to us by your actions, your activities, your prophecies. And Lord, we can know with great comfort and great assurance how you have saved us from our sin. Lord, not only do we know with certainty these things, but we can profess and praise you for the fact that you have told us it is not just us who you save. It is not just your people who you save. Lord, you intend to save the world unto yourself. Your work of salvation is not yet finished. Your gospel goes forth into the nations. You are a God who is mighty to save and one whom we can trust ourselves to. We trust ourselves to your character, to your graciousness, Lord, knowing that even when we see dimly what you are up to, we can know with confidence that you are in fact up to it and you are working all things out to the purpose of your will. We trust you and we thank you, Lord. We now uh, offer up our sincerest praise in prayer, trusting that you hear us and you are glorified by our love of you. We pray this in your name. Amen.